Sutcliffe's last victim was a 19-year-old student at Leeds University, Jacqueline Hill. Her death led to the setting up of a new super squad of top detectives, desperate to catch a man who seemed to defy every known detection technique. In the end, Sutcliffe was caught quite by chance. He'd put false number plates on his car to go out once more looking for a prostitute to kill. When the plates were checked and the police finally found some of his weapons, he confessed. Once he'd admitted he was the Yorkshire Ripper, Sutcliffe took over 15 hours to tell the police the rest of his story. A story of 13 killings, seven ferocious attacks, and a gruesome game of hide-and-seek with the police that lasted for six long and terrifying years. And we're live. Welcome back, everyone, to the, another episode of the Solvable Mysteries podcast. I hope everyone had an amazing New Year's celebration. I sure, you know, enjoyed myself. Uh, I'm joined by Glenn Highcove. Dude, how was your New Year's celebration? Are you excited to talk about a really cool case today? Well, really interesting case, you know? Yeah, Happy New Year. Um, yeah, I mean, we've been under crazy lockdown here in California, but uh, <laughs> we still got away midweek to go uh, visit Santa Barbara and Ventura, and I've got some good some good pictures up on my Flickr of that if anybody wants to check that out. But uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely, uh, you know, I'm excited because I, you know, like you and I have both, I think, done a ton of research about this case, and um, <laughs> we've kind of like, <laughs> ate drank and slept the propaganda about this this case for like you know all week so i'm definitely interested in in, in inventing my views about a lot of things about it yeah um one thing i want to ask you before we start rolling well first of all i think we could disclose the case so we are gonna be talking about the yorkshire ripper case um some of you guys may have already known about this case because it's actually pretty big right now on netflix the show called the ripper it's a four uh series episode a four series show i'm sorry and you know both of us have watched the show in full over the week i personally liked the the show the question i have for you glenn is have you heard about the yorkshire ripper case before watching the netflix show because i personally haven't heard about this case which was actually now when i think about it it's quite surprising because uh, as i understand the yorkshire ripper you know was like the most infamous uh serial killer from england in recent times so have you heard about this case beforehand no, I was coming in totally fresh. The only, well, let me let me backtrack on that. My wife, to her credit, had watched, um, you know, a couple. Sorry, she she'd watched this a couple weeks ago, and she was telling me a lot of good things about it. She was really excited. She was she was telling me a lot about it, and then I think last week, Dr. Grande did a thing about it as well. Though Dr. Grande's thing was more like kind of perfunctory and like a little a little shallow. Um, it wasn't kind of his usual work. Uh, so after that, I was like, hey, this thing, this thing is interesting. And then, you know, you and I did a little planning around it and research. And then actually, as I started watching the Netflix, uh, even though I have some some opinions about that, I definitely, in, I'll say I enjoyed the Netflix series. It was very interesting. I came away from the Netflix series 
with a whole new appreciation for something that I had no idea had ever happened. I'd never heard of this thing before that. Yeah, definitely. Same here, dude. I enjoy the show. Um, there were some areas of the show that I didn't like in particular. Well, I wouldn't say I didn't like it because as the show went on, well, I will say the first episode or like the, the second part of the first episode sort of led me to think, uh, here we go again. This is going to be one of those, you know, situations where I don't necessarily agree with what's being pushed here and things like that. But then as I've, you know, watched the second episode, the third episode and, you know, the last episode, the fourth episode, I sort of started to understand that, yep, like, you know, initially I thought that, you know, the people were going to just sort of you know trash the police because it's they were pushing some sort of an agenda for say but then as you know the show went on and when i actually did my own research about the case you know i think the police i'm sure you will agree the police didn't handle the situation you know uh, perfectly that's for sure right yeah i agree i mean it, it's funny because you know like <laughs> i think i mentioned this before i'm generally on the side of law enforcement and actually probably even more so kind of pro law, law enforcement and, and, you know, that's, you know, within reason. Right. But you, that being said, kind of the ongoing theme of our show, you and I keep on finding all these situations where law enforcement screws stuff up and it's really frustrating. And it kind of reminds me of that ESPN segment called, come on, man, where you're like, come on, like, like you guys keep dropping the ball. Um, so I think that's one thing about doing this show is some of, some of my view of the professionalism of a lot of different police forces has sort of fallen a bit, despite coming probably my, my early earlier biases in, in their favor. But yeah, this one is interesting. So this one has, I think, kind of probably probably both good and bad. So it has some some bad police work and it has some other things that, to be fair to that police force, we'll, we'll go over. We're probably making we're not necessarily in their in their control. They were more like a, a victim of the era. But then, yeah, there were some things where they messed up. And then the good the good news is there was also kind of some good old what they called coppering, some good old policing at the local level that seemed to ultimately make up for a lot of the problems. Yeah. Um, at this point, I'm sure we are ready to get into the story. Um, I know that you have a lot a little bit more to say you know more than i have this week i i have some areas that i will want to sort of hog the show a little bit uh for like a good 20 minutes where i will be talking about like certain events that happened but other than that i don't really have too many strong opinions and i will sh surely just sort of be more of a reactionary uh you know, co-host on the show tonight. So we'll see what happens. Um, do you want to get us into uh, whatever we want to start off with, man? Yeah, yeah. And I'll just, you know, I'm glad you mentioned the Netflix show up front because Netflix is really interesting. You and I have both talked about this before. Um, and I want to make sure when people hear the word Netflix, it's like if people fall into two camps. They either totally believe what Netflix does as like gospel and that's the truth. And, you know, that's it, case closed. And then there's people that take the opposite tack where they're like, well, Netflix is just full of biases and they're just telling one side of the story. And, you know, they're, they're slanted in a certain ideological or political direction. And probably the truth is somewhere in the middle. Um, you know, I tend to lean more towards like I, I've definitely heard of Netflix messing up or being biased or, or missing out on, um, you know, like kind of kind of cherry picking what they what they consider, you know, 
to, to depict. So, yeah. you know, just just everybody should know, however you feel, whatever whatever news network you watch, we're going to be fair to you. We're really going to going to take that into account. I think the other thing that's interesting here is coming right off of what we talked about with profiling. This was kind of an interesting case where profiling kind of backfired. I think it backfired almost in the face of the evidence. It backfired in the in the in the face of people's expectations a little bit. It's interesting how this is a case where profiling kind of got this case off into like a, a place where it could have been solved maybe a lot earlier. So that's that's unfortunate. We're also going to talk about a lot of, you know, this is a little bit different for us. This issue, at least from from my end, is going to be a lot more social social issue heavy. And that's that's in part because of the way Netflix spun it. So Netflix, you know, really did choose to tell a really fleshed out story about, you know, why this happened the way it did. And, and, and to its credit, you know, it's it, I think it was worth it because, you know, if you look at it, that's the mistake a lot of people make when they kind of try to reinterpret history from right now is they kind of apply their mindset and like what life is like right now to like 50 years ago. Um, and like, that's not fair 40 years ago, let's say like things were very different. Like the UK, England in the seventies was very different than it is now, uh, in a lot of ways. So I think that, you know, to its credit, Netflix, I think did a good job of painting that picture, but okay. That being said, what we're going to talk about right now is, you know, the idea of what do you think of or do about somebody that does murders that, that don't seem to really happen for any any particular reason. You know, like even when you take into account their childhood and maybe their psychological history or what happened to them growing up and maybe somebody that can kind of blend in really well, you know, they say they have sort of a normal job, they don't look super creepy, they're not doing weird things, they're not, they don't stick out. And, you know, how do, how do you treat that? Like, like how, how do we deal with that as a society, especially if they're able to do what are in fact not just horrible crimes but almost insanely horrible crimes almost without detection to the point where the person we're going to talk about today i mean he was referred to by some people as like a terrorist i mean and it wasn't political like like a you know one kind of terrorist would do but it was definitely terrorizing the population and it was doing so in a way that seemed intentionally not just to satisfy some kind of internal urges but actually to I don't know, bring attention to himself in some some way and, and inflect fear on others. So it's, it's pretty disturbing. And I think we're going to find kind of the intersection between that and some social issues without getting too heavy into the politics, if you, if you know what I mean. And I yeah. think, yeah, I think people will find this is pretty fair at the end of the day. So, okay, that's the, the initial introduction. So what we're going to talk about today is we're going to talk about a guy named Peter Sutcliffe. And who was Peter Sutcliffe? He was just this kind of semi-normal man who was born in Bingley in the West Riding of Yorkshire to a working-class family, uh, raised as a Catholic. Uh, His parents were John William Sutcliffe, uh, and his mother was Kathleen Francis. Before that, her name was Coonan. there was a little bit of history of domestic violence, from what we understand, in the family. Uh, there were some allegations that the father used to beat the mother. Uh, there were other kids in the family, but he was born especially small. And it's interesting that this came up in the Netflix series that he was undersized. He was only like five pounds when he was born. And even when he grew up, like he was always kind of trailing yeah. behind. 
Yeah, I want to just yeah. to step in and give you a breather. Uh, I want to mention the fact that, you know, his father or not his father, uh, someone from his family, I can't recall right now, actually said that he was a little bit of a mama's boy, if you know what I mean. Yeah. He was, yeah. he was sort of uh, always hanging on to like the mother's apron and things like that. His like other siblings were uh, taller than him. So he was a smaller child, but he did witness like, his father, you know, Peter's father actually sort of, you know, did some domestic abuse uh, towards his mother and, you know, he saw that. So I think there was sort of a, uh, I don't remember, was it in the Netflix thing or not? But I think yeah. someone portrayed him as a sort of, um, you know, what made him to do the killings, the horrible things that he yeah. did was actually the fact that he was... Um, he was a product know, of his environment. Exactly. Right? I mean, you want to get yeah. into it in, in more depth. Yeah, I'll, I'll say, yeah, I mean, this is so, <laughs> the person that says it in the documentary is somebody that I have a little bit of, I have a little bit of, bit of stuff to just differ with her about some of her different statements at the end of it. But I'll say this is one of the, one of the, the times where she was, I felt she was right or had a good observation that they said sometimes um, when the father abuses the mother, one of the children will like kind of identify with the mother and defend the mother, but then later they may actually hate themselves and view like view that as like a weakness in themselves. You know, they almost like kind of yeah. flip and, and, and take sides against themselves. So yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that that was definitely. You know, I will say that she was the person that we're referring to. Obviously, probably won't put her in the post production or anything like that. But uh, I didn't sort of felt like she was the one that was sort of uh, I, I wouldn't agree with there was this other woman that i was like the way she, the her the her just tone was really annoying you know what i mean <laughs> even though i was like sort of uh agreeing with everything she was saying because she was making sense but you start watching this show and if you're like me a little bit you, you see this woman talking in that tone you're like Ah, uh, here we go again. You know what I mean? Here we go again, 2020. But it was actually, she made good points. You know, at the end of the day, I don't have anything bad to say about uh, what she was actually saying because it made sense. You know, the police definitely messed up here a little bit. Um, so, yeah, uh, I think we could jump into more aspects of his life. Or, yeah. Yeah. Yes. So, so, I mean, that, and it's worth pointing out too, apparently he was pretty much a loner even from then, from a kid. So, Maybe because of his size and he felt so intimidated by the other kids and he's, you know, he's seeing his dad, you know, beat the crap out of his mom all the time at home. So maybe he's afraid of physical violence happening to him. And, and yeah, whatever reason, he doesn't really uh, meld, well, you know, like blend, uh, engage well with other kids. Like if you drove by the schoolyard, his dad said, if you drove by the schoolyard, you would see him just off in a corner by himself. And I, I will tell you from what I've studied about human psychology and child psychology, that kind of early either rejection or even if it's not rejection, it's sort of him rejecting himself. Um, that, that early kind of uh, social isolation has some very large downstream effects and they're, they're, they're serious and they're real. So, um, you know, that kind of, uh, sometimes it's called rejection sensitivity. So mm -hmm. it's almost like you're, you're, you're rejecting yourself or you're, you're, you're cutting yourself off because you're worried about the rejection. So, mm -hmm. okay. Enough about that for now. Um, it, needless to say, he, frankly, he doesn't seem like it was a very smart guy. Now, someone would argue, well, he came from a background that maybe wasn't encouraging him to succeed. But I don't know. There were there were definitely people that came from that background that did actually go on to like you know Oxford and places like that. So, 
Um, you know, he, he left school at age 15. Uh, he ends up working at a lot of menial, that's, uh, Wikipedia says menial jobs, and I agree. Two stints as a gravedigger wow. in the 60s. Yeah. So that's where he apparently came up with a pretty dark sense of humor. I, I can imagine them making pretty strong, though, too, right? If you're digging holes all day. Wow, that, dude, I just I just want to ask you, could you imagine leaving school at 15 to go become a gravedigger? <laughs> what holes. the hell is that? Yeah, I mean that's that's a pretty grim job, yeah. which kind of kind of makes you wonder if he had a lack of sensitivity to go be able to take that that job. Exactly. I think this is. I just I just want to stop here for one second. I think it's very important, you know, because I personally would at fifteen digging graves. I would be probably too depressed, you know, to do that type of a job. I just want to ask you a question. Could you imagine yeah. yourself at 15 leaving school and going to dig graves? I think this is not some uh, detail that we could like brush off that easy because I think this is important, you know, a dude who yeah, yeah. leaves school at 15 to go become a grave digger on two different occasions. I think this these are like red flags, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it does seem like it's it's a pretty weird job. Yeah, no, I couldn't. At 15, forget it. I, yeah. I was so lazy. Yeah. I, I mean, but, but by the way, like, like I, I can't even see myself digging holes all day. I mean, that seems like a pretty dull job. So, yeah, I don't know. Between that, then he works at, like, a television factory on the packaging line. He's uh, – <laughs> he left this position, it says, when he was asked to go on the road as a salesman. So when they actually asked him to do something interesting that required being social and using his brain, uh, maybe the being social part, to be fair. This would scare him off. He left the job and then he's working night shifts at like, you know, some other jobs, like just really, really, I won't, I won't belabor this too much, but eventually he ends up, uh, you know, he, he even, even got, he ended up stealing tires at one of his, one of his, like, like stealing used tires at one of his jobs. Yeah. Uh, he, he like, like was on like unemployment for a while and then eventually he becomes a truck driver or, um, <laughs> For our UK uh, listeners and viewers, a lorry driver um, for a company, and and that seems to have been his job for the rest of let's call it his working life. Exactly. So you know, and I, I won't. By the way, I, I I don't mean to put down driving trucks. I mean I actually think driving trucks is a pretty cool job, um, but I don't think he was a genius. So let me let me just put it there that, that that'll kind of feed into some of my how I feel about maybe why he did some of the things he did oh yeah for um, sure i mean i yeah. didn't i didn't any i didn't get any indications that he was a very intelligent man um however i will say that he made you know on the day of his arrest i'm not really sure if we will talk about that uh, so i'll just leave it for now but you know i read how he got apprehended because uh the netflix thing didn't really have those details but you know i will just mention it that um after he did the killings and all, all the cells that we're gonna be you know going into detail right now um uh, he actually got caught because he was uh, in a car with a prostitute, which, you know, at that point, um, police officers were looking for uh, people like that, you know, because everyone who was in that position was a suspect or like a person of interest, I would say. I would say. And actually, he had a hammer and a knife on him when he was talking to the police. He actually managed to, like, sneak away on the day of his apprehension for, like, a few seconds because they didn't... They 
just thought that he was a suspect, but they didn't. They weren't sure when they first caught up with him that he was, you know, the the Ripper. He actually told the police that he had to go to the toilet, you know, to take a piss or something like that. He actually went to the toilet. He uh, ditched like his hammer or something like that. For some reason, I believe he had still a knife on him. So when he was in the police station, he asked to go to the toilet again. And then he hid his knife in the police station toilet. So I will say that he was not super smart, but he was street smart in a sense that he he maybe he gained this information over you know the the five year period or maybe even a longer uh, time period as we now know uh, of these attacks. Uh, maybe he gained like some street smart on how to like yeah. sort of avoid detection. So he was definitely not intelligent in terms of like um you know adapting to the society being productive and you know just in general being useful to the society but he was definitely smart in being in terrorizing the society you know what i mean yeah you're right he was crafty when it came down to i guess the things that were interesting to him so yeah gives you almost a sense of like the lost potential of him uh had he you know maybe gone a different direction in his life um okay so Without belaboring this too much, um, one of the main kind of central points of controversy and themes, both in kind of the general body of literature about him and especially in the Netflix show, I mean, to the point where you almost get sick of the topic, is this whole thing about whether or not he ever used prostitutes or was ever, let's say, um, ever had like a, a business transaction gone wrong with a prostitute, maybe at an early age that gave him reason to hate prostitutes. Oh, listen, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just put this up front. From what I can tell, um, it doesn't really seem like he had any particular grudge against prostitutes. I really think that, you know, for what, what they kind of, especially what they depicted in the Netflix show, prostitutes represented a class of victim that A, he could kind of look down on, I guess, even as somebody who was pretty low in society himself. Um, but I think B, the attention was not on. So it's interesting that like someone really stupid might think that like a child is like a helpless victim that you could sort of like victimize, you know, at least someone else's child, um, you know, for some kind of weirdo out there looking for someone to do something awful to. But in fact, that brings down a whole, the whole world on your head, right? Especially if it's, you know, the child is someone that actually cares about their child, they can bring a lot of trouble with it. It seems like to me, it seems to me that he was cherry picking people who in his mind were, were, were people that society didn't care that much for. And that isn't me saying that society shouldn't have cared about them. That was kind of the whole point of the Netflix thing, I think, was you really got a sense for, you know, this society that had all these class divisions and kind of judgments about what people do with their lives. Uh, and, and sometimes the judgments were not entirely incorrect, as we'll see. But definitely nobody deserved to be victimized in this way or any victimized in any way, really. So I, I think to me, it seemed to me he was kind of trying to pick people that he thought society would not really punish him that stringently for, or would not react as strongly yes. as, you know what I mean? If he, if he'd picked on like little kids at the kindergarten or something. Exactly. Yeah. That's, that that, that's, yeah. that's the same feel I got. Yeah. You put it in a really nice way that, you know, he wasn't necessarily looking for prostitutes, even though, you know, that's what the police investigation was sort of, you know, surrounded by, you know, that idea that, you know, he was only out for prostitutes and things like that, because I believe he actually attacked 
random women who were definitely yeah. not prostitutes and the police actually initially didn't even um link those attacks to the ripper because they assumed the ripper only killed and he only killed uh you know prostitutes well he did always try to kill to my knowledge he always every single time he tried to kill but there were many times where the victims managed to sort of you know avoid the doom the impending doom of peter sutcliffe but when they reported their sort of attacks to the police they were like they were not linking them because to them sort of peter sutcliffe well they didn't know who you know the ripper was but the ripper at that point to the police seemed like an entity that could not fail always end up killing someone you know so if you were not a prostitute but you were assaulted that's some other guy you know that's not the ripper the ripper only kills prostitutes so that's like the the mental state that police was in so i mean uh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so i guess that that was the interesting because to your point he is if you look at his picture i mean he's sort of a semi-handsome guy so he's apparently he's a, he's a kind of a, also a small man he's not a big man so maybe that was it was, a, it was a, <laughs> maybe people really had this image in their head despite having what was called a photo fit which was sort of like a a, a very high-end almost like kind of like, like 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 a drawing made out of photographs that almost exactly matched his face so it's kind of weird that people kept ignoring it and they were looking for i don't know like a like a pirate with a patch over his eye or something i mean or a monster um yeah he's like kind of this small man he kind of blends in a little bit i mean to me honestly with the, the beard and stuff he kind of looks like the devil i don't i mean i i don't trust this guy but apparently he, he had a very easygoing manner yeah. Um, when he would attack, uh, talk to women, whether it was prostitutes or just you know women in the street. Yeah. So I think he was he was kind of disarming, and he kind of like didn't. The only thing about him was apparently once you actually sat down there and tried to talk to him, he would just clam up. He didn't have any social skills. He was like a really super boring guy, and maybe that was part of his problem. The other thing is, and I'll, I'll, this is the last thing before we get into the actual crimes, is uh, he was married. He was married to a woman uh who uh actually had some psychological issues herself so i think uh, supposedly she was actually schizophrenic um she had miscarriages they weren't able to have kids and actually at one point she has an affair on him so with an ice cream van driver wow so maybe there was like some kind of indignities in life piling up on him that gave him a sense that he was sort of on the bottom of like the game of life you know what i mean like like the bottom of the social pecking order yeah and in, in, in this like you know definitely british society has its you know kind of almost caste system or or, or levels of classes in, in a way that i think in america we don't see in america we do have like some some kind of class structure but in britain i think especially back then it is so much more rigid and it's something i think that as an outsider it's not as easy to detect but it's to the point where like even even like the little variations in your accent will tell everybody around you exactly where you were born, where you lived, yeah. and probably even your income. So, interesting, huh? Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, I think uh, at this point of the show, I think we could get into the actual crimes. Now, for the you know crimes section, I think you have like the initial crimes. Uh, I think we have like literally split it in half 50-50. So I think you could definitely uh, bring us into his like, I guess, initial cr- crimes because we do have them in chronological manner laid out here in our shared file. I think 
you know, uh, you will go into more of a, um, just like the casual descriptions or like the general information about those people. Uh, do, when I will be talking about like some of the victims, I do have some grim stuff for everyone. So, you know, just a, a warning beforehand that things will, will get grim in this podcast for a good like 10 minutes or so so yeah i just wanted to you know let everyone know that this this will get pretty dark soon yeah i mean that's perfect so it's just a perfect way to describe what happened so uh you know from 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 what i i was able to discern from both the research and the netflix show etc it seems like his his crimes had had kind of two two main sections two periods so the first period actually ha- happened pretty early as early as 1969, so well ahead of the, the actual murders, where um, while he was with a friend, he actually assaulted a prostitute. Like the friend was in the car, he ran off somewhere from the car. Hey, I got to do something. And then it, it, what, he, what happened was he actually hit a prostitute over the head with like a makeshift blackjack. A blackjack is like, you know, a weight in a pouch that you would hit somebody in the head with. He did it with a, a sock, a, a rock and a sock. And the rock came out and it kind of didn't really fail. It, did, sorry, it didn't really work. It failed. The rock came out. The prostitute was injured. Um, he actually told his friend about it, surprisingly. And that, you know, it's too bad the friend never mentioned it to anybody at the time. But, um, you know, it's interesting that he kind of did that semi-publicly. And, you know, supposedly maybe it was in retaliation for something. But maybe it was, you know, like like getting cheated out of a, a, a transaction with the prostitute. But that's really just speculation. It hasn't been verified the the other times so what happens is there was a a bunch of other things that happened uh there was actually another assault he did right after that where uh he did actually get picked up by the cops but he didn't get charged and it turned out like uh, this is against a uh i think also a prostitute and turned out this lady's husband was already in jail for assault so you know once again he kind of he's kind of unusually lucky in his respect that like this is somebody that could have probably beat the crap out of him uh, later, but you know, he got away with it. And then back. So what happens is about six years later in 1975, you see a series of, uh, women, like three women in a row, including one of them's a, a teenage girl. And, you know, you're starting to see a signature method where it's kind of a hammer and a knife or a hammer and a screwdriver. So what I mean is he'll take the hammer and he'll do head strikes with the hammer, usually at the back of the head to try to incapacitate the person and maybe, you know, obviously knock them unconscious and maybe even kill them. And then he'll use the knife or the uh, screwdriver to like systematically penetrate their body, sometimes in a frenzy of like stabs. Um, And just fascinatingly, these first three assaults, like no one actually died, but like some of these people were, were very seriously injured or maimed, you know, traumatized obviously um one of one of the one of the victims had to have brain surgery so you know i think this matches often the behavior of serial killers like this that they escalate in their crimes so they almost go through like a beta testing period yeah if you think about it you know what i mean like they're they're trying to kind of learn their craft but obviously like no one is really not everyone is successful their first time so okay so what happens later is you start to see um Subsequent to this, a series of murders of women who were alleged to be prostitutes and often were around an area of town called Chapel Town. Now, Netflix goes into goes to great, great pains to a great effort to, to describe this area of town that, it, you know, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, it had been an affluent community. 
uh, now was uh, mostly kind of Afro-Caribbean community that was um, pretty low income, 21% unemployment at the time. Uh, you know, the demographics had changed. There was a lot of racial tensions with the police. So people were not necessarily willing to cooperate yeah. with the police. Yeah. yeah, definitely. That was an interesting part. I just want to mention uh, one last thing about the whole area. So we're talking about Leeds in the, I believe, West Yorkshire County. Now, this is definitely what I would say, you know, how there's like um, the Midwest or something like that. This is like the UK's version of the Midwest a little bit, but not really, but just a little bit because it's not around London. It's uh, just around like the middle part of, you know, England. And actually, you know, one other thing I wanted, wanted to mention that, you know, Leeds was apparently, I didn't know this before watching the Netflix thing, but Leeds was apparently, uh, you know, like, you could you could almost see like a Detroit of England, you know. It was the place where all of the production was going going on, all of the factories, all of the I believe like uh, rail carts or something like that was also made in there. Uh, you know, it was the hub of the industrial revolution that you you know England pretty much. Uh, was the first country to you know revolutionize itself in such a manner but then also uh, the netflix show mentioned that you know uh, after other countries uh, sort of went through the industrial revolution as well they uh, they were able to produce the goods at a lot you know cheaper prices than what people were you know producing in the factories in leeds where you know peter sutcliffe was doing his killings so a lot of the money a lot of the sort of richer people uh, and you know the more wealthy communities uh, they sort of moved back to england and you know leeds just became a sort of a, a little bit of a forgotten town well nonetheless you know it's still a really nice uh, city i've you know i've seen some pictures from leeds it's actually a really cool city i would definitely want to go there someday um but yeah i just want to give this a little history information that we also can take away from netflix that you know leeds was a city uh on a downswing at you know these times i'm i'm, I'm sure you would agree with me right yeah i mean it's almost analogous to like ohio uh or detroit or like you know the rust belt in the united states was probably probably the areas going through what's called deindustrialization so you're seeing like i said it has the, the remnants of the industrial revolution and heavy industrialization coming out of World War II. And then as, as sort of the economy changes and factories and things and, are moving out, maybe there's like more abandoned areas. Um, yeah, it's like there's there's some amount of poverty. And there's also, like you said, there's a lot of blue collar labor. So there's <laughs> things that maybe service blue collar labor uh, needs. So especially there was a, a what's called a red light district, which for our listeners don't know what that is, that means basically a prostitution area. And basically it was assumed that any woman who didn't match the racial demographics of that area, who was hanging around those areas late at night, fair or not, the assumption was often from police and other people that these people were engaged in prostitution. And actually, to some extent, that was true, not universally, but um, there was even like kind of a, I don't know if you call it like a swingers club or, you know, some kind of um, adult industry kind of club there in the area that also attracted a lot of you know prostitution like, gaiety? like you know, they're talking about gaiety club? yeah the gaiety yeah where it's like you know it's very similar to here when, when there's adult shops and things there's always hanging on the periphery there's always kind of black market yeah sex workers and stuff so you know because people get excited and they want to they want to they want to uh, you know relieve themselves so okay 
So what you start seeing happen is um, a series of women turn up brutally murdered uh, over the time period of about, let's say, a year and a half, two years. Yeah. Yeah. Where you have, I'm just going to quickly dive into a couple of these and I'm going to hand it off to your detailed uh, description of some of the later murders. But the the first murders are are notable because, I mean, on one hand is Netflix depicts it. Oh, these are really sad, pathetic stories. I mean, the first woman is a woman who um, almost certainly was a prostitute. Um, Actually, sometimes she was described as, sadly, as kind of a pest. She was uh, an alcoholic. She had four kids. Her husband did not, her violent alcoholic husband no longer lived with her. And the night she was murdered, she actually left her house um, that night. She left these four very young children alone. I mean, none of them could have been above the age of eight. So I don't, you know, wow. that's, that's a different discussion of, yeah, I don't even know. I don't know if the pill was available then. I mean, it's sad to think that she had these children and, and she left them alone. Yeah. Like late at night, she would leave them alone in the house, which, and they knew it too. And she would go off to go drink and I guess to service clients. And there's a discussion later on about how much this person is a victim of society, which she is, but also, you know, what, what that says about her, it's not, not good either way. Uh, I mean, meaning of the word, but yeah, she was case in point. Struck twice in the back of the head with these very definite, like, kind of dime, dime-sized indentations in her head, and very traumatic injuries. I mean, you know, big penetration wounds in her in her breast and her abdomen. Um, they look like, you know, they said it was very disturbing because it looked like it was done with like deliberate and slow effort over time. Like, so like, it was done slowly, and the pathologist, you know, said, you know, obviously a very disturbed person did this. Uh, the next, the next person, the next woman who died. Um, just really, really, I think, was it like another two months afterwards? Do you know? Yeah, uh, uh, I believe, to be honest with you, I'm Emily not, Jackson, yeah. Yeah, Emily Jackson. I'm not really certain uh, about the exact dates for the initial killings. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, yeah, yeah it, was, it, it was recent. It was like, like right after. So it was, and once again, these aren't exactly in Chapel Town, but they're in the periphery. They're in the area where police assume... Once again, they make very, very, you know, judgmental assumptions about you as a woman if you're in this area late at night um, about what your what, what your living is or, or your morals. And like I said, it's not always fair. But in this case, it was, it was also a sad one. This is a woman that actually had a family and she was working as a prostitute out of the family van because her she she and her husband were 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 financially desperate. They were near bankruptcy. They needed money. I mean, and this this poor lady. Um, yeah, uh, you dude, know, she's, yeah. Just just before we go uh, further into the deals, I do have like the time date. So the first, uh, oh, yeah. you know, Vilma McCann, as we uh, you mentioned earlier. I don't think you mentioned her name, uh, but she was murdered. You know, uh, Peter's first murder happened on the thirtieth of October in nineteen seventy-five. So this woman that we are describing right now, Emily Jackson, she was forty-two. Uh, so she was murdered on the 20th of January of 1976. So it's around like a good three month period in between the first and second killing. So I think it's pretty important to mention that, you know, he killed his second victim like a good like few months, you know, in the future. Yeah, and we'll, we'll see this with him that he seems to go about a, anywhere between a month to like a year between killings, depending on, I guess, how he felt. Yeah. And maybe opportunity and, and, you know, other things in this life. We don't really have a good insight into that. 
but yeah, I mean, it's it's almost always, like I said, you know, it, it kind of crimes of opportunity against women that are either alone because they're working as prostitutes or just just normal, not quote unquote normal, but it's just say women that, that were not engaged as prostitutes that just happened to be walking alone at night or that took up his offer for a ride or or just and in some cases, one case, one of the women tried to get away, tried to run away and he still ran after her and tracked her down. I mean, certainly it wasn't at all necessarily related to the, a woman's behavior towards a strange man. So it's really important to stress that like, these are all, no matter what, these are all victims that definitely didn't deserve what happened. But yeah, I mean, in all of these cases, it's interesting, I guess what's interesting or, or, you know, signature about how he does it and horrible is that he's, he's taking these women and he's, he's almost always hitting them over the head with what turned out to be a hammer and then really just stabbing them and slashing them, and in some cases disemboweling them um, with the, you know, the screwdriver or a knife or both. Um, and then here's the other thing that's signature. Like once again, we talked about profiles of killers and how they act. This is right out of the John Douglas book. He often would um, stage their bodies or pose them. So in almost all of the cases, he had this habit of, of, of sometimes even coming back to the scene of the crime afterwards. But if he didn't do it, then he would do it before. He would drag them out into like either the alley or the street or the park and have them with like their legs towards the road, their head toward, you know, away from the road in some place where they would be found. I think there was only one or two of the killings where he didn't do this. But he really seemed to want these bodies to be seen, to have what he did be seen. And what he did was super horrible, super gruesome and and frankly reminiscent of Jack the Ripper. This is why this became known as the Ripper, not just because of what happened later in the case when somebody started leaving, you know, recordings and letters, which we'll talk about. But, you know, this kind of mutilation of the bodies was really reminiscent of the uh, the old Victorian era Jack the Ripper um, serial killings that happened to prostitutes, you know, a hundred years before that. So, you know, it, it, you know, it's it's at this point, you know, because you know Netflix, the Netflix shows go, goes and it takes a lot of pains to go through these individual killings, probably like the what first six or seven women. Yeah. And it really, it really makes the point that like, yeah, some of these women were prostitutes. Some of them were, they were all just victimized in horrible ways, you know? And, and, and they give a sense of not just that, but like, you know, what's unfortunate is a lot of cases at this point, there wasn't any semen or saliva. They did have tire marks, which in a couple of cases they were able to record, which turned out to be convenient to the prosecution eventually. Um, but unfortunately in that era was not really able to be tracked down very well. They didn't have the kind of computers and databases we have now or the records, uh, especially UK. I know, I know the U S at that point was a lot better about um, what they call interagency cooperation than Britain was like Britain, even, even modern Britain has a really, really has, has challenges with that, that, that aspect of, law enforcement agencies cooperating with each other. It's also interesting that they had, they knew about what size he was because he had stomped some of the victims, especially early on. The second victim had very prominent boot marks. And then I think the third or fourth victim had like footprints in the blood. I think it was in the, in the little, the poor, yeah, or like, like, like run down apartment that she was killed in that she let him in. Um, you know, she didn't expect this guy was going to do this. So they, they had some very good physical evidence they didn't have, you know, DNA or anything like that back then. They had some ways of matching blood type and things like that, which eventually did turn out to be um, useful. But yeah, 
I think in in this case, you know, so in this case, in the Netflix show, which we'll talk about in a little bit after after you know we talk about the rest of the crime, it goes into a whole other sideshow about you know like the police agent, the police's like kind of political uh, machinations internally that were getting in the way about society. There's a whole long thing about kind of like women's rights and you know social order and disorder. But I'll I'll table that for now. I'm gonna I'm gonna turn it over to you for really some of the nitty gritty about, you know, just how horrible some of these attacks were. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I want to mention the fact that, you know, I have some details on, uh, I would say, uh, the the killings from, you know, his seven, seventh victim to his 13th victim. So I think it's pretty important for us to talk about those details just for the fact that actually a lot of the time he was almost caught like every single time. I think... He was a very, very lucky serial killer, so I'm just gonna not waste any more time. I'm just gonna jump to the seventh victim, uh, who was Yvonne Pearson. She was 21 years of age. She was from Bradford, and the attack before that, you know, before Yvonne, um, there was Jean Jordan. So he killed Jean Jordan 37 days before he killed Yvonne Pearson. So only a good month you know after he goes in and now a little bit information about Yvonne so Yvonne Pearson was a 21 year old prostitute and she was murdered by the Yorkshire Ripper on January 21st on the on 1978 so just around his you know middle time just the middle space of his like killing spree uh, her body was not found until two months later so on the night of January 21st Yvonne Pearson left her two children in the care of a 16 year old neighbor and went to the Flying Dutchman pub. She left there at around 9.30 p.m. to go earn some money, as she told a friend before she departed. Yvonne was due in court in five days later on a charge of soliciting. It would not be her first conviction of, the, of this particular offense, and there was uh, a prospect this time of actually going to prison, so she had something to, you know, lose. She had kids and things like that. Uh, that same night, Peter Sutcliffe, you know, the the Yorkshire Ripper was helping his parents move to a new home. Uh, his brother Mick and his father John had assumed that he wanted to go home to Sonia, his wife, uh, because, you know, he declined staying for a drink with the family. So they thought he was just going home to see his wife. Now, actually, Peter Sutcliffe bypassed his home when driving from Bingley to Bradford, you know, where he was living at that point, and was soon cruising to the territory of Lumb Lane. As he was driving, he narrowly avoided getting into an accident. He braked suddenly and soon was surprised to see a blonde-haired woman dressed in a black sweater and black pants tap on the front passenger window. They agreed on a price of five pounds and soon were on their way to a waste ground at the back of Drummond's Mill, where, you know, Peter's father worked, actually. Now, after Yvonne Peterson, uh, Pearson, I'm sorry, had gotten out of the car, Sutcliffe hit her over the head several times with a heavy walling hammer, which he had kept under his car seat. Almost immediately, another car appeared and pulled in alongside Peter's car. Now, Peter Sutcliffe pulled, pulled Yvonne's body beside an old sofa 
and to stop her from moaning and making noises, he actually grabbed handfuls of horse hairs from the sofa that she was dragged to and began stuffing it into her mouth and down her throat at the same time as holding her nose. After a while, he realized he released her nose just to see if she was still making noises and she was so he grabbed her nose again and held it again now eventually the car that was parked parked alongside his car drove away to Sutcliffe this is his quote it seemed like an hour um, so before it finally left now once he was left alone with his victim he dragged her trousers down and bared her breasts and proceeded to start kicking her in the head and on the body and you know at one point he actually jumped on her chest with the weight of both feet finally he hid Yvonne Pearson by throwing soil rubble and turf on her body and then covering you know the makeshift grave with that old sofa so that's definitely uh, you know grim but i think it's pretty important to say that you know this is his seventh victim he almost got caught but miraculously managed to you know get away with it i don't really understand how that worked now on january uh, 31st of the same year you know 1978 helen ritka was murdered by him so this happened only 10 days after the last killing i think this was the shortest amount of period you know in between the killings so helen ritka was an 18 year old prostitute now she was murdered by peter sutcliffe only 10 days after the murder of yvonne pearson uh, the yorkshire ripper had once again expanded his territory at this point to now include the red light district of huddersfield a town that he had not previously i think ventured into uh, in regards to his you know uh, devious deeds helen ritka had a twin sister rita ritka and they were fairly new to the prostitution trade because they were both prostitutes they had only worked for a few weeks and had evolved a way of defending themselves against men that might want to harm them so this system that the twins had developed you know to protect themselves against you know the yorkshire ripper and other you know evil men at that point uh, worked uh, in this way so they would uh, always take clients accept clients at roughly the same time now the clients would precisely have 20 minutes uh, and they would rendezvous back at the same place so this was their technique now an, an interesting detail that some of the other prostitutes in bradford uh, i i assume because you know the yorkshire ripper was really terrorizing the community they had developed their own system of protection so it's just an interesting point to mention that uh, these prostitutes in Bradford and Leeds actually had a system uh, where they were working in pairs. Now, one of the prostitutes would take down the license number of the car that other prostitute was going off in, and then the piece of paper, you know, with the license numbers, would be ripped up in front of the driver when they returned. So, you know, just to make sure that if, you know, this other uh, woman that I'm working with right now, if she doesn't return you know within the time period that she is supposed to return as you know as of you know what the the deal was how many how much time they had to do their their thing pretty much uh if that woman would not return you know she would go to the police and tell them you know this man took 
my friend uh, and she, they were supposed to come back at this point, you know, but they didn't. And this is the license plate. So I, I, I think it's a genius idea, actually. Now, on January 31st, Helen and Rita Ritka, you know, the twins, left their flat at around 8.30 p.m. to the red light area in Great Northern Street. At approximately 9.10 p.m., Rita saw her sister Helen get into a dark-colored car on the other side of the street. Now, Rita was shortly picked up by a man in a Datsun. Helen Ritka arrived back from the first, you know, from the first piece of business that she did with that uh, dark-colored car, because that was not Peter at that point. But then she was spotted by Peter Sutcliffe, who convinced her there was time for a quick one in the timber yard not far away. Because, you know, at that point, according to the system that the twins ran, they were probably were supposed to meet up at the same place and stay secure. But, you know, Peter Sutcliffe actually convinced Helen that there was still time. Uh, and he drove into the timber yard with her. Sutcliffe planned to use the method, method of attack that he had uh, sort of uh, ran with for the last few murders, I assume, suggesting that they do it in the back of the car and then attacking the woman uh, when she gets out of the car to get into the back seat. You know, that's when he would also get out of the car and once the woman's getting into the back seat, he would hit uh, the woman with a hammer. Um, so that's what happened. With her back to him, trying to get into the rear of the car, Sutcliffe swung his hammer, but it caught the roof of the car and only grazed Helen Ritka, who assumed he had hit her with his hand. So she didn't know that it was a hammer. So in horror, she said, there is no need for that. You don't even have to pay. Uh, Sutcliffe had expected her to immediately shout for help. Now that's his quote that he was surprised that he that you know Helen didn't shout immediately. Soon he hit her uh, hard on the head with a hammer and she crumbled to the ground and began making a, a loud noise. He then suddenly realized that you know what he was doing was in full view of two taxi drivers who were parked nearby but were oblivious to what was happening actually so Sutcliffe then grabbed her by the hair and dragged her to the end of the wood yard she wasn't dead yet her eyes were open and her hands were up to protect her against further blows he then got on top of her and covered her mouth with his hand while she was still struggling, he went ahead with a sex act, so she was the only one of his many victims that he had actual sexual intercourse with, so that's interesting to note as well. Uh, after the taxi drivers had departed, Sutcliffe went and retrieved his hammer, and as Helen Ritka staggered to her feet and headed towards the car, he hit her with heavy blows to the back of the head. He then dragged her to the front of the car and proceeded to throw her belongings away. As it was obvious to Sutcliffe that Helen Ritko was still alive, he went to his car and grabbed the knife and then stabbed her several times through the heart and lungs before leaving. He hid her body behind a stack of timber. An interesting fact that uh, when Peter Sutcliffe returned home to Bradford, he actually sponged off the spattered blood that was on his shoes and the knife the knife that he used to kill Helen, he actually returned it to the kitchen drawer from where he had taken it. 
the, that knife was probably used for their daily kitchen activities, actually. Now, the next victim was Vera Millward. Um, now, this attack happened uh, 104 days after Helen's attack. So, you know, three months into the attack. So, who knows, actually, if he didn't kill any more women uh, within those times. But, you know, that's the only ones that we have uh, that are linked to him. So, this woman, Vera Millward, was a 40-year-old prostitute living in a rundown council flat in Hulme, Manchester. She was murdered by the Yorkshire Ripper three and a half months after the killing of Helen Whitka. On May 16th, Vera Milward, a frail, sickly woman who had one lung and had three major operations in 1976 and 1977, she also had chronic stomach pains. Now, this woman left her home at around 10 p.m., telling her Jamaican boyfriend that she was going out to buy cigarettes. Knowing what she really meant, you know, because she was apparently a prostitute, the, the boyfriend did not expect to see her for a few hours. On Tuesdays and Thursdays, this woman had a regular client who would usually park outside of her flat in Greenham Avenue and flash his car headlights. Now, this night, this man didn't show up, and Vera actually hung around for business, with the car trade this is the quote from the police so i mean the car trade meaning that you know prostitutes would, would sort of uh go to a car that would stop and sort of offer their services or whatnot so peter sutcliffe was actually the first person uh, to come along and park next to her now peter and vera drove for about two and a half miles to the manchester royal infirmary and a quiet spot in a parking compound where prostitutes and their clients were frequently seen. After getting out of the car, Sutcliffe attacked her with a hammer and Vera tried to fight him off. A man later claimed to have heard three screams for help from the hospital grounds, but decided they were from a patient at the hospital. After he had killed her with the hammer blows, Sutcliffe dragged her to a spot by a fence and began to stab her with a knife. So once again, Peter almost gets caught, but you know, these circumstances just keep sort of falling in place for him, so he does not get caught again. So on the 4th of April, Josephine Whitaker, who was 19 and she was from Halifax, was killed. Uh, this happened only 33 days after his last victim was killed. Uh, Josephine Whitaker had been visiting her grandparents. She had to work the next day and insisted on walking home on her own. She left at around 1, I mean 11.40 p.m., so almost midnight, taking a route that would take her to Savile Park and across it to the suburb of Bell Hall, Halifax and Ivy Street where she had lived at that time. On the night of April 4th, Peter Sutcliffe had been out drinking with Trevor Birdsall, and shortly after closing time, he dropped Trevor off at where he was living. I found this pretty interesting. He was driving cars but also drinking, so I'm sure he was not allowed to do that. Instead of heading home, Peter actually went in the opposite direction and at around 11.30pm had driven to Halifax and was cruising around the quiet residential district of Bell Hall and soon gravitated towards the playing fields of Savile Park. There were a few people walking their dogs, and after several laps around the park, he spotted a young woman, uh, you know, the same Josephine Whitaker, walking on her own. He quickly parked, put a hammer and a rusty screwdriver which he had sharpened into his pocket, 
and began to follow her. Within minutes, he had caught up with her and began to talk to her as they walked. He asked her if she had far to go and she replied that uh, she had been at her grandmother's and you know she was still gonna walk for quite a while. Um, as they walked along on their way towards Sawal Park, they passed by a man walking his dog. The man would later report to police that he, he had seen a woman whose description and clothing were similar to Josephine Whitaker. You know, uh, she was apparently, according to this man, uh, she was walking with a man who he, he had described as being age 19 to 22, so quite a bit younger than, you know, Peter actually was. Maybe he seemed young to these people, who knows? Um, he also described the man as being 5 foot 8 inches in height, of medium build, um, wearing jeans and a 3 quarter length dark colored coat, who appeared to have not shaved for 3 or 4 days and had slightly wavy greasy hair. So. As the pair approached the park, Josephine Whitaker told Sutcliffe that she normally took a shortcut across the field. As they started to walk across this field and were about 30 to 40 yards from the main road and out of the range of the street lamps, Sutcliffe asked her the time and marveled at her good eyesight as she was able to tell the time from a nearby clock tower. Sutcliffe uh, lagged behind pretending to look at the clock but in reality was removing the hammer from his jacket and getting ready to attack. Sutcliffe hit Josephine Whitaker from behind with his hammer and had knocked her to the ground where she was she made some noises and you know he hit her again as she laid on the ground. Now this is a crazy part. Sutcliffe then noticed someone someone walking along the pavement where they had been walking a couple of minutes earlier. He then dragged, you know, Josephine's body approximately 30 feet into the darkness away from the road. As he was crouched over the body, he was then horrified, this is his statements, to hear voices close behind. He turned and saw two figures hurrying across the field and watched as they passed close by him. A man walking by the park at the time of the murder said later that he had heard an unusual noise and this is his quote, the type of noise that makes your hair stand on end. But you know, Peter is still not apprehended. So Josephine was still making loud noises when Sutcliffe pulled her clothing back, turned her over and then proceeded to stab her 21 times with a screwdriver in the chest and stomach and 6 times in her right leg. Her skull had multiple fractures after, you know, she was found dead. And this leaves us with a few other victims, so Barbara Leach was also a murder. Now, this happened 150 days after the last murder, so Barbara, Barbara Leach was actually a 20-year-old university student about to start her third and final year in social psychology. Barbara and her friends helped their landlord with tidying up at around 12.45 a.m. Even though it was lightly raining outside, Barbara decided to get some night air and go for a walk. None of her friends had wanted to go along with her for this walk. Peter Sutcliffe, driving through the area, saw her leave her uh, groups of friends and you know he saw her walking by herself. So he quickly drove past her and turned 
left into Ash Grove. As he opened the car door to get out of the car, she was walking towards him. Now, he let her walk past him before attacking her with a hammer from behind. He then dragged her into a backyard and, and after pushing up her shirt and brought to expose her breasts and undoing her jeans and partly pulling them down, he then proceeded to stab her with the same screwdriver that he had used on Josephine Whitaker, you know, 150 days ago. He then placed her body in a distorted jackknife position behind a low wall in an area where dustbins were usually kept. He covered her body with an old piece of carpet and placed some stones on top of it. Uh, this leads us to the next woman who actually was murdered 353 days ago. So at this point, the murders definitely expand, you know, the, the, the time period definitely expand in between the murders. This was Margaret Walls. Uh, she was a 47-year-old civil servant who worked at the Department of Education and Science office in Pudsey. So she was definitely not a prostitute. So we can definitely tell at this point that this man is not hunting for prostitutes. He's not. He's just hunting for women in general at that point. Now, this woman worked late on Wednesday, on August 20th of 1980, working an extra, extra few hours as she was going on a 10-day holiday the following day. She left her office at around 9.30 p.m. and at 10.30 p.m. Uh, she was walking uh, in the streets. Now she had to walk the half mile to her home in Farnsley, a suburb of Leeds. Now, meanwhile, Peter was actually driving through Farnsley on his way to Chapel Town when he spotted Margaret Walls walking towards him. So he was probably driving to Chapel Town for one of his next murder victims most likely but you know he just stumbled across a better situation you know in between where he was actually going and he parked his car and proceeded to quickly catch up and overtake her over a distance of about 400 yards near a driveway with high stone pillars he stunned her with a hammer blow to the back of the head shouting filthy prostitute as he struck further blows to her head so i'm assuming that this statement filthy prostitute came from peter himself so he was thinking that she was a prostitute but she was definitely not one um, then peter looped a length of rope around her neck tightening it as he half carried half dragged her about 20 yards from the point of attack up the driveway and into a high walled garden. There, while kneeling on her chest, he, he strangled her. After she was dead, he stripped her all of her clothing except her tights. And when he left her, he partly covered the body with grass, cuttings and leaves. And this actually leaves us to the last uh, murder victim that, uh, you know, Jacqueline Hill who was 20 years of age, she was killed only 12 days after, you know, this other woman, Margaret Walls, was killed. Uh, she was aged 20. She was a, a student in the third year of her English degree course. She was returning home to her students' hall of residence in Haddingley, Leeds, on a wet, rainy Monday on November 17th in 1980. She had been at a probation officer's seminar in Leeds city center and had caught a bus and got off at a stop along the main Leeds Oatley road at around 9.23 p.m. She crossed the road to walk approximately 100 yards to her residence 
Meanwhile, Peter Sutcliffe was sitting in his car parked outside of the Irondale shopping center eating a carton of KFC fried chicken and chips. It was only seven weeks previously that he had been at the same location and had seen Apadia Bandara, a 34-year-old doctor from Singapore that he attacked but failed to kill after a witness spotted him. So one thing to remember here that as I'm describing all of these murders, in between these murders, he's attacking women and he's being unsuccessful in killing them. So these are not the only crimes that he's doing at this point. These are only the women who actually he manages to kill. So he watched Jacqueline Hill uh, uh, he, as he watched, you know, the woman walking, he quickly switched on, you know, the car ignition and drove up Alma Road. After he drove past Jacqueline, he stopped his car and waited for her to walk past him. After she passed him, he got out of the car and began to follow her for a short distance before delivering a blow to her head as she was passing an opening. Seconds later, another woman, uh, Andre Proctor, began walking down the same road as, and Sutcliffe quickly hoisted his victim into a standing position before dragging her approximately 30 yards onto some spare land. And then, you know, there he pulled her clothes off and stabbed her with a screwdriver repeatedly in the chest and once in the eye. So it's it's a lot of, you know, grim stuff. But yeah, that's pretty much, you know, just to round up his killings. I don't know how, how long I was talking about here for. It seemed like a while. So I'm definitely going to let you chime in, dude. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's it's pretty horrible stuff. I mean, suffice to say, this guy was... I mean, just obsessed with doing really horrible things to specifically women. I mean, there does seem to be, you know, I, I could see why someone would think that he was focused on prostitutes, especially given the statements out of his mouth. But really, it seemed like he was hating women. You almost, if you were going to get Freudian with it, you might want to say that maybe he was projecting his mother, who he like maybe resented for being a victim of his father or bringing him into the world and him feeling like some kind of powerless little boy. And that's, that's how he ex exerts his power is just doing just un unmentionable things. I mean, jumping on people's bodies and strangling them. And it looks like he got to be quite skilled at, at doing, you know, horrible cowardly murders to defenseless victims. Right. He does that by the way, the profiling, right. He's a, definitely an ambush killer, uh, blitz killer in the way he acts. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's pretty horrible. I, I, I think, you know, I, I had a whole kind of thing I wanted to talk about, about Netflix. So I think I'm going to save it for maybe if we come back to this topic, because I think the Netflix thing has so many different flavors and ways that, that we can take us. And maybe it's better if I just, if, if we just circled to our reactions here at the end, because I think there's, there's enough that we could cover here oh, yeah. and probably enough that I've already covered that I think there's, there's, there's some points that I definitely wanted to bring up and I wanted to see your, see how you felt about. Let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess one of the things that's really sad about, and Netflix does a good job about this, by the way, especially early on, is you know you really get to see the the faces of the victims. I mean, you literally see the faces of the victims, but you also see their families. So that you know, right away they start off with interviewing a couple of the children of these different women that were murdered, and you know they're they're coming from some pretty sad places in life. You know, they're they're coming from kind of the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder. Um, you know, they're really losing in life in a way. And have been victimized by society in some cases victimized by their alcoholic mother who leaves them home alone um 
and then their mother's killed and then they're like basically orphaned and i mean i i, I just wanted to say you couldn't get, you almost got the sense of like victims getting victimized by other people who were also kind of like doing badly in life and it was it was it was really touching, I guess. I think that was the one thing I got to commend Netflix for was putting a human face. You know what I mean? Like I'm sure back then, oh yeah, yeah. No, no, nobody was like nobody was talking to those kids in the paper or the news, right? But now here we are, 40 years later, you know, 45 years later, and we get to actually see like, you know, I mean, one of them, like uh, the second victim, uh, second second murder victim, I should say, um, her teenage son had to identify her body. Oh. Yeah. You know, this is the lady. This is the lady that was working as a prostitute to help feed her family and her husband. And then, you know, you know, the seventeen-year-old son has to come see her her brutalized body at the morgue. And that, oh my God, that was that was brutal. So I think that was that was a good a, a good thing to a good thing to see. I think in terms of humanizing it um, and making you think about some of the social issues that were going on, which you know are are, are pretty deep. I mean, you got to wonder like. What, so there's just one thing that I thought of, and I couldn't I couldn't help but think of is, are you familiar with the Beatles song Maxwell Maxwell's Silver Hammer? Um, I'm not. Nah, I'm not. Okay, it's from uh, I think it's from Abbey Road. Uh, there's a song called Maxwell Silver Hammer, and it's like a catchy song, but basically it's about a guy that does what this dude does. Like in the song, this is like a popular Beatles song, you know, from like what 1969, I think. This Maxwell character is like bing bing, like knocking people on the head with a silver hammer and killing them. Wait, this and is I a have... this is a Beatles song. Yeah, it's a Beatles song. Yeah, what? I mean, I mean, this, this is their final album, Abbey Road, and it's it's you know the whole album is a masterpiece. But that song always bothered me because I didn't you know even as a little kid I didn't think that was too funny. And this is this is obviously after that album. Yeah. I can't. Well, though I'll, I will say, it looks like I feel like his first crime is right around the time that album came out. I can't help but think, you know, all these hammers on heads, and who knows, maybe hammers are like a really frequent, you know, instrument of assault. So maybe it's not that much of a coincidence. But I can't help but wonder if someone like him, yeah, you know what I mean? Like, like I, I always wonder, like stuff like this. I mean, what he's doing is disgusting, right? Like, I think that's part of the reason why, the, especially the prostitutes who, you know, were used to kind of men doing some maybe, you know, distasteful things or, you know, stuff that a lot of other people would not, you know, want to deal with. Yeah. They were surprised by what he was going to, you know, like they're like, they, they were, they, they wanted, they thought he wanted something else. And what he's really focused on is just this really gruesome, violent, like, I think even, I mean, well, <laughs> we're not going to go into too much too much about it today because we're going to probably save it for another episode if we ever do it but you know even other prisoners definitely had something to say about what he did so he, what he did once again this is one of those things where even by like the rules of other criminals and, and horrible human beings this was way beyond like you know yeah even criminal decency let's call it right so that's that's kind of interesting i can't help but wonder what makes somebody get so fascinated with that? And, that, you know, it's worth pointing out that this isn't an era where movies get a lot, you know, popular culture and movies get a lot bloodier and a lot more gruesome. I mean, there are some movies from the 70s that are as gory and bloody, probably worse than anything you can see now. Yeah. You know, and I can't help but wonder, is this like a mind virus? Like, do people get these ideas in their, their head and if they're stupid 
or foolish or sick? Do they get obsessed with it to the point where it's almost like pornography for, you know? Um, maybe because, you know, back in the day when there weren't any of these movies, now that they're, you know, all of a sudden all over the place, maybe some of the people that, you know, could potentially be changed by these type of movies, they actually did end up getting changed, you know, psychologically, and they do end up going on, like, these killing sprees. Um, I'm not sure if that happened to Peter, however, but I will say that, you know, probably right now, everyone is pretty much used to, like, all of the, I would say darker stuff well maybe the current generation is once again not used to it you know i don't know man i don't really have any strong opinions regarding the movie scene you know i'm not much of a movie uh super fan you know you know the older i get the more i worry about the power of images and sound and you know like this kind of full yeah. court press yeah that the media does in your senses i really feel like people could be almost hypnotized into you know think i mean a case in point we, we just watched avatar again which is an awesome movie and you know you know there were people that got there was like a whole depression syndrome that happened after avatar came out because avatar especially if you saw it in 3d which by the way best 3d movie ever oh yeah dude if you avatar is still just side note avatar to me is still the best 3d movie experience i have ever I mean, it was like being there. It was it was probably in my top three movie experiences of my life, and I'm in my 40s. So, but there were people that got depressed after that movie because you know the movie the, the movie is kind of idyllic and has all this nature and wonderful stuff and the music and everything. Like you can get hypnotized by media. So yeah, I I, I don't know. I'll, 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 okay. I'll leave it there for now. Yeah, yeah. But but here's another thing I thought of. Yeah. Besides, we were, we were talking about his small size and maybe his issues about his mom and him and his power. You know, okay, that's predictable territory. You know, once again, <laughs> once again, big tall Glenn picking on the little guy, uh, on short guys. Okay, well, I'll get that out of the way. Maybe that's just my issues. But um, what you got? You got you got bullied by short guys. Oh yeah, but well, no. I, I'll just say I feel like a lot of short guys have a big chip on their shoulder about tall guys whether mm. or not tall guys actually did anything and yeah i mean that's that's a whole other topic we could do a show on that but maybe that's a different <laughs> maybe, channel maybe that's a pass maybe that's a pass <laughs> yeah yeah maybe i'll save that for my own channel yeah. um someday yeah i mean uh, what i will say is here's another interesting thing is it makes you wonder especially for somebody that has more psychopathic tendencies yeah how much of some of this is like a curiosity about the other humans you know what i mean so it's somebody that doesn't have a lot of education it's not somebody that ever had like an anatomy class I mean, some of it almost seems like experimenting with like, I mean, some of it seems rage filled for sure, but some of it almost feels like it's like, what, what's the body like under this part? What's the body like under that part? What happens if I push here in a very sick way? You know, it's almost like someone dissecting a frog. Um, I don't know. Like, but, but the person's a frog, unfortunately, <laughs> nobody wants to be the frog, but it, it's, it's kind of weird. Like some of what he did, it wasn't clinical. But some of it. Oh wait, are you are you in? suggesting that he was uh, doing these just to see what the person was looking from? Oh, so oh, so this is your theory, right? That yeah, you know, yeah, he just, potentially just yeah, just a thought that he you know yeah. just a thought. Obviously, it's probably you don't think that it's probably the most likely theory or anything like that. No, but, no. But, but just the thought that he was potentially doing these crimes just in order to you know sort of his curiosity of you know how like the body would react when it's getting penetrated by a screwdriver things like that right yeah, like he was yeah, curious you, you, i mean you see it i mean definitely everybody has 
plenty of us have macabre macabre curiosity to see like you know videos of horrible accidents and and deaths and things so there's there's a natural curiosity about mortality and things and and certainly you see it with children when there's there's kind of violent child offenders some aspect of what they're they they do especially because they're they're their intellect and their apathy sorry their their empathy (laughs) they have apathy they don't have empathy their empathy isn't as developed yet maybe maybe that's what's also going on here is maybe his empathy has been almost wonder, almost like childlike. I wonder yeah. if he had like you know when he was a child because I don't have this information. I wonder did he potentially torture animals because you know that's sort of like the go-to for all the yeah. for most of the people who do like these gruesome killings. They usually uh, like start with at least that's you know my general uh, sort of viewpoint that I've got that they start off with like animals you know they start torturing animals I wonder if there's anything yeah. like that in Peter's background I personally don't have this information no I didn't see that yeah the so-called McDonald triad of like uh, torturing animals bedwetting and playing with fire which you know it's a little bit disputed now by how real that is but yeah I agree it's like usually that's kind of almost like if maybe that's like the alpha testing of doing horrible things to human beings is, is starting with small animals that can't fight back yeah. um, or that, that people don't notice as much. Yeah, I didn't see anything like that. that. I think that was the thing that puzzled a lot of people was that aside from the domestic abuse going on in his family, allegedly, he didn't, he didn't have a history of like, you know, other externalizing behavior, like attacking other children and getting into fights and, you know, like like other, he didn't have, have aspects of other antisocial personality disorder, you know, constellations of behaviors that might might have made it easier to depend it on him um i mean yeah i, I just it, it is interesting to think of too like i guess to switch gears for a second um you know the the the, the netflix series was interesting that it, it did like i said right or wrong it made me aware of i, I think they, they did a good job of depicting that the police force i mean a it was the 70s so there wasn't really wasn't any kind of Computer, computerization of evidence. In fact, the, the room that they were keeping the evidence, the floor that they were keeping the evidence in for this case, had so much paperwork and crap in it from all the leads that they had to put concrete pillars underneath the floor in wow. this high-rise building, or it would have collapsed. God so that's damn. a lot of that's that's a lot that, of paperwork, man. I, I, yeah, and it's not it's not computerized. It's not indexed. I mean, I'm, I'm old enough to remember when you had to use the card catalog at the library. That sucked, dude. Like, like, so imagine that times like a hundred or a thousand. I mean, you can't. I think some of it really was like, like, yeah. It was like a crossroads between societal change. They also mentioned like, hey, the whole police force had recently gone through this kind of like aggregation process, where like it went from like local police forces becoming yeah. merged into like kind of like county level, and there was a lot of like, kind of loss of like. Um, a loss of touch with the neighborhood where like kind of the, the local beat officers who would have known all of these women in these neighborhoods and kind of had a better idea for like who didn't belong. Some of them were getting moved yeah. and yeah. So they, they kind of, it was like really bad timing. Well, yeah. good timing for him, bad timing for them. So yeah, they lost that. They had, they had a change in leadership. I think there was also like a sense that those beat officers, the ones that actually broke the case, a lot of times they actually did did feel like maybe it was this guy, exactly. And they would suggest it to yeah, suggest it to their off to their to their their superiors, 
And that was where I wondered, it was interesting because the superiors, like the superiors were really focused on this profile of like this um, Geordie accent, which is weird. I can't even remember how they got on that. For some uh, reason, it they was, got on, yeah. yeah, the Geordie accent, let's remember that there was these uh, tapes sent to that, oh, you know, yeah, hoax senior right? investigator, uh, you know, Mr. Oh. Oldfield had received hoax uh, letters and oh. hoax tapes that they, f just one thing I want to, before, you know, yeah. uh, close the show, I think there's a few details we still have to like mention that they're of real interest in this case so there were these hoax tapes and hoax letters you know taunting uh, mr oldfield who was the lead investigator at that point um who actually died the same year that peter sutcliffe was apprehended because uh, or like uh, i'm sorry like a few years down the line because of his health deterioration because of the case because he had a lot of backlash after you know everyone found out how he pretty much botched the case so pretty much he gets these hoax tapes that had like a Geordie accent so Geordie accent I'm assuming that's from like Newcastle area you know that's uh from my knowledge you know from like the football teams in the uk that's the only thing i can base my ge geography off on uh so basically it's a whole different area from you know peter sutcliffe was actually at and actually um they were uh, this this person peter sutcliffe was interviewed nine times during the course of the investigation and he was never even in the top 40 suspect list and i will say that uh these one of the you know officers at that point who was on the netflix show he said that he uh, brought this information i believe to mr oldfield and then he the the the, the investigator said get out of my room with this nonsense his accent is a, a, of a Yorkshireman accent we're looking for a person with the Geordie accent and pretty much if you come back with me with someone else who's who's not who doesn't have like the Geordie accent you will be like uh doing like uh, road patrols for the for the rest of your police service so you know it was and yeah that was pretty crazy because the man was not you know he didn't have a geordie accent but they were solely focused on that because of some tapes that were sent by a hoaxer who was caught 25 years later i assume i think he was caught in 2005 because you know they decided uh, because at 2005 the pretty much the technology had evolved and the dna detection was evolved so they sort of linked the dna of the hoaxer uh, because he left a little bit of saliva on the letter because he was using like uh he was like licking the envelope to like secure it so that was a stupid idea definitely but for back in the day they didn't know that you know down the line i will get caught so he he did like three years in prison he got sentenced to like eight there's a whole like charade about that so this is another detail i just want to mention they were solely focused on a prostitute only killer with the geordie accent which you know peter sutcliffe was killing every woman he saw that you know who was vulnerable at that time you know alone in the street and he was not from you know newcastle area so that's that's all i have yeah, freaking scumbag! The guys, the the, the person, the people that that were that were tro basically trolling the police and giving them false clues, and I mean, it had a it had a, a a more than noticeable effect on the case. It really, yeah. it really just set it off on a totally different path. And I, I mean, I, I think it's it's more than fair to say that women died because of these jackasses. And I mean, really, three years seems too 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 few years to pay for something like that. I mean, really, if you almost want to want to give them like more like something close to like a manslaughter sentence. So, okay, then finally, I'd like to kind of wrap it up. I think case in point, 
I'm going to put this out there. And then, you know, for any of our listeners specifically from the UK, I would be, be really interested, you know, from you living in this society, what you think of this thesis. So one of my theses was when I was talking to my wife about this was, you know, case in point, the the kind of the, the lower level police officers, presumably more, you know, like working class, I guess, police officers are not not as educated or not as, as let's say, quote unquote, high class or middle class as the, the management and the police agency. They come and they're like, look, I mean, this guy looks like this guy we know. <laughs> He's got the boots. He looks like the drawing. I mean, you know, he fits a lot of his profiles. You know, his tires, <laughs> tires might even match. Like, it just just things where it's like, you know, he keeps coming up on these lists. And then, you know, like, I always, I, despite the fact that, you know, A, they had these kind of false, these red herrings that were steering them off to the Geordie accent and the prostitution focus. Um, I wonder how much could you argue that the same classism and caste system and things like that, that, that were they were criticizing, um, kind of as a whole in this Netflix series, how much of that, how much of that was them not being taken seriously because of almost that same kind of like, oh, you don't know any better, you lower class than me, working class police officer. I know better. I went to, you know, this university or that university. Like, I really wonder how much of like, if this is a theme in the Netflix thing, they didn't really go into it too much. But yeah, I mean, this thing was, was you know, broken essentially by like just a kind of an innocent traffic stop. Or investigation by you know they called it uh, good good coppering, yeah. and I was like yeah yeah good coppering like you know just police officers doing their job, you know policing the community asking questions and you know save that lady's life by the way that was in the car with him yeah um, you know so eh you know without getting into all the other details and and like I said I, I we could even go into what happened to Mr. Sutcliffe but I think it's worth worth holding in our up our sleeve for another episode uh that's all i got to say about that for now but i'd really be curious to see what uh what our comments are about this yeah definitely um so this was episode number 78 i believe of the soul world mysteries podcast um definitely had a different feel to it this week because uh some dark stuff was sort of brought on yeah this was definitely like a dark episode i'm not really sure if our audience like are super into this type of things like it's not like we are super into these types of like uh you know stories and i'm definitely not like super into the de- de- depicting you know these horrible events but yeah it just had to be done you know it's it's the yorkshire ripper so it's it's a it's a gruesome case there's no other way around it now for next week i'm not really sure what we're doing for the next week uh, i'm not sure if we're gonna be doing like grim stuff like this uh super like on a super regular basis but you know it's something that we wanted to do i mean it, it was a really interesting case to research i had fun um by the way guys uh join us next week uh on the, another episode also you can find this podcast on all of the podcast apps uh we have seen a significant significant increase in you know the podcast downloads um just on, in general on like the apps you know spotify stitcher um google podcasts apple podcasts so on and so forth so definitely catch us there if you you know it's if it's more convenient for you to listen to us on there and yeah thank you for joining us guys uh we'll catch you on the next episode and as always stay safe and peace out <laughs>